Father, as we look into the Scriptures today, I pray for the outpouring of God. Father, thank You for the Word of God. And Lord, I pray that You would teach us, that You would open up the Scriptures to us and open our hearts and open our lives. Father, what is the use of doing this, of of learning from Your Word, unless You come and speak it to our hearts and renew it to our hearts? Father, I pray that You take these young people And you do a work in their lives. And Father, as we look into the Scriptures and see what it says, Father, bring life. Give us knowledge as to the things that were happening in that time in the Scriptures that we'd have insight. But also do a work on our hearts that we would get great object lessons for our lives to keep us in the right path, to keep us walking in the right way. Father, touch each heart here, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, we are in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. And what we had read about was we had read about the imprisonment of the apostles. Now it wasn't just Peter and John that were in prison. It was all of the apostles were put in prison into the jail there, which is right there by the temple. Uh, And that's because of what it said in verse 16. And it says, And the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. In verse 17, But the high priest rose up along with his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. And they laid hands on the apostles and they put them in the public jail. So because of the jealousy of the Sadducees, who were, who were the, the priesthood, remember, were the, were the Sadducees. The Pharisees were another sect. There were two sects that made up the Sanhedrin. And, and uh, uh, we, had heard, we had read about how they were put in the jail. An angel came and delivered them out of the jail and told them to get right back to the temple and start preaching And that's exactly what they did. They went right back into the temple and they started preaching. And so let's pick it up at verse 22. But when the officers came, when the officers who came did not find them in the prison, uh, uh, they went and they reported it back saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened up, there there were none inside. But now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, The men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid uh, that they might be stoned. And when they brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, who you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. And he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a Savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. So they went right back and they started preaching. 
they got picked up again, they got thrown before the council. So the council, remember, is made up of 71 members, about one-third of those Sadducees, two-thirds of them Pharisees. But this second uh, persecution is also by the Sadducees and not the Pharisees. So the first persecution that came was instigated by the Sadducees. And what Peter, interestingly, does is he starts speaking of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then the Pharisees couldn't go along with this persecution. Paul used that same technique. And now Peter is going to use that, that, same, that same word again, start speaking about the resurrection, and a Pharisee is going to come to his aid in a moment. Uh, his name is, is Gamaliel. But what we see here is that we see what, what Peter then says in verse 29. It says, Peter and the apostles answered. So it wasn't just Peter speaking. It was the other apostles as well, but because the book of Acts tracks Peter and Paul, the words that we get are the words primarily of Peter and Paul. And so it's, it tells us what Peter's words were, although many of the apostles were speaking and giving testimony to the council at that time. Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on the cross. So again, what does he do? He starts speaking of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was exactly these types of words that got him delivered in, in, in the last time because he well knows that the Pharisees believe in the resurrection, the Sadducees do not. And it, it was this contention that the Pharisees would never go along with this. So he's got two-thirds of the council automatically, uh, in, in a way, defending him if he speaks of the resurrection. And then he says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. So again, what Peter does is he takes this council, and here Peter is the one who is accused. But he turns the whole thing around and he starts accusing them. It is you who, has kill, who have killed this, this man. You have done it, he tells the council. You have killed this man, Jesus. And he is the one whom God exalted to the right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And what they had said back in verse 28, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And that's exactly what happened in Matthew the end of Matthew, uh, uh, they, remember they cried out, they said, His blood be upon us and upon our children. So, so the leaders had actually called us upon themselves, and now they're saying, you're trying to put His blood upon us. And Peter said, this is exactly what you asked for. You asked for His blood to be upon you. But w- the other words that Peter says that I want to focus in on is in verse 31. He's at, he's at the right hand as Prince and Savior to grant repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. What we have as believers through repentance is something that's extraordinary. But we must have lives, lives of repentance. And I will tell you what I have seen in my life. I have seen very fine Christian people, very fine Christian people, fall into an attitude where they sin and fail to repent. And repentance is very different than mere remorse. Remorse is feeling bad for what you've done. It's as Judas was remorseful for what he had done. But there was never an attitude of repentance, which was something to say repentance means you're going in one direction, you turn around and you start going in the other direction. 
Repentance is more than confession. Repentance is to stop, you confess your sins, you turn and you go the opposite way. He says He has granted to us repentance. Granted to, to, repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins come through repentance. When we stop, we confess, we turn, then we go into a new direction. I have seen fine Christian people end up in a way of sin. And I want to focus in a bit on that. Because it absolutely destroys lives. If you look back earlier on in the same chapter, in Acts chapter 5, you see the sin of Ananias, which we had covered. But I want to look at that, that again. In verse, in, in verse 1 of, of Acts chapter 5, But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge, and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And then in verse 8, it says, Peter responded to her, this is Sapphira, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. So the sin here is that they sold a piece of land and they brought a portion of the money and acted as if it was the whole amount. Peter even says, it was yours, you could keep it, you could do with it whatever you want, but you can't play games and say, this is the whole amount and I'm bringing it all to you while you're keeping something back. There was some deceit there. But it's not that Satan had put the deceit there. It's not as if the devil says, I think I'll just you know, make this person sin today. I think I'll have this person do something. Imagine if, if Satan had that power. If Satan said, I think what I'll do is I will... I will uh, have Jim Tour go out and kill somebody today. Satan can't do that. But what happens is, I may conceive of a certain deed, let that deed develop in my own mind, and as I make that, I let that deed develop in my own mind, there may be satanic influence there. But it is my decision to open the door. It is my decision to let this thought begin to fester. And then what happens is, the enemy then has an avenue to come in. Because it says in verse 4, Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have placed this deed in your own heart. You have done this. Ananias is very much a member of the church. If he wasn't a member of the church, Peter would have no authority over him. Peter is the one who said that judgment starts with the household of faith. In 1 Peter he wrote this. And he says here, you conceived it in your heart. And then in verse, uh, up in verse 3 it says, Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. So when we open up our heart to do something deceitful, the enemy begins to come in. Let me give you an example. A man... Married, begins to have thoughts that, about another woman. And he lets these thoughts begin to develop in his own mind. 
And as those thoughts begin to develop in his own mind, he interestingly meets this particular woman again and again at work. And she's going through certain struggles and she's talking to him and she thinks he's such a wonderful man because he's listening to her. And he's all the while has these things stirring in his heart already and he's continuing to open up his heart to this. If he does not make a conscious effort to repent and to shut that thing down, what will happen is he will start to walk in this and the enemy will start to walk in his work in his life And he will find himself alone with this woman and the two will end up in adultery. This happens very often in the workplace. But it is not as if the enemy said, oh, look at that man waking up this morning. I think that I'll get him caught in adultery this day. No, the man has conceived of a deed in his heart and let that deed fester and it has developed and moved on. Look in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 4. Right from the beginning, we see this sort of thing happening. And we see what God has to say about this. And this is the story of Cain and Abel. In Genesis chapter 4, reading from verse 3. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions, And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then God said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I I will be hidden. And I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, wherever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. Okay, so Cain presents an offering, it says. And it says, Cain brought his offering over the course of... In the course of time, Cain brought an offering. Abel, on his part, also brought from the firstlings of the flock. Why did God have regard for Cain's offering and not for Abel's? There's been several speculations. One is that it says that Cain brought an offering over the course of time, whereas Abel brought an offering from the firstling of the flock. From the first fruits that he had, he brought the offering, whereas Cain brought what was left over, over the course of time. It may be that Cain 
brought an offering that was more acceptable because it had blood. It was an offering of, of animals rather than an offering of fruit. Uh, but there were actually several offerings that God had ordained that he talks about later on that come from actually the fruit of the ground, not just by the offering of blood. But it says, but as for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. He became angry and his countenance fell. He made a decision to become angry and it changed his countenance. It changed his face. It changed the way he felt. We make decisions that affect the way we feel in life. We make decisions. Now, there are certain things that come our way that we have nothing to do with. But there are other things that come our way that we have a lot to do with. We make decisions that affect the way we feel. And the way we feel then affects the way we look. And God says to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire for you, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. So he says, if you do well, you obey these rules. If you obey these rules, if you do well, your countenance will be lifted up. But if you don't, Sin is crouching at the door. The decisions that we make to go opposite to the ways of God will change our lives. They will change our lives. I have talked to people. I've talked to to women whose husbands have gone astray. Men who know the Lord are very much saved. They very much know the Lord. And they've decided to go another way. And they'll say, I... I look at this man and he's not the man that I married. I look at him, he's different. He looks different. His attitude is different. His face is different. Especially when he gets in these rebellious times. He's different. What's happening? What makes him different to these people's view? To this woman's view? What, what makes the man different? It's that sin is crouching at the door. Satan has so filled his heart, as Peter said... Peter said, you conceived this deed in your heart. Now, Satan has filled your heart to lie against the Holy Spirit. To lie to the Holy Spirit. So what happens is, when we make decisions to go the wrong way, the enemy then has a foothold and he begins to come in. Ananias was very much in the church. It never says that Ananias went to hell. It says that Ananias died. He died a physical death. doesn't say that he went to hell. He died a physical death, death and so did his wife Sapphira. Because we see the immediate and, 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 and uh, uh, strong outworking of judgment at the beginning of a dispensation. Here with Cain, he tells him, he, he immediately says, where is your brother Abel? And then he says, what is this that you've done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out crying to me from the ground. Did you know when people are dead, they still speak to God? This is the example we have in the Scripture. They're still able to speak. His blood was crying out to God. So death is not the end in God's economy. 
You know, very often we, we think, oh, death, and that's the end. It is not the end to the believer. Death is not the end. Even your blood can cry out and speak to God. Death is not the end. Death is maybe the end with the interaction here on earth, but it's not the end at all with God. You know, I've, I've told my kids, I say, you know, one day you may lay me in the ground, but just remember, I'm not there. I'll be very much with God. Sin crouches at the door and wants to draw us astray. So what happens then? Is as we read in, in, in Acts chapter 5, Peter says, he says, This Savior has come to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We must have repentant hearts. If we do not repent, every day we make a decision that is a decision to not go the way of repentance. We get further and further away and it becomes harder and harder. Look at what he proclaimed over over Cain's life. What he said over Cain's life is, you won't get any fruitfulness of the ground. The ground is cursed because of you. You're not going to get any fruitfulness. What you will see when a man chooses a way, or a woman chooses a way, to go the wrong way. And this thing of falling into adultery falls very much to married women too. In fact, I have known multiple students, multiple graduate students of mine, that their wives have gone away and committed adultery. And, and, you know, these young men will come to my office in tears, just absolutely destroyed because of the decisions their wives have made. So, made. so it's not reserved just for men. It happens to women as well. And what happens is, if there's not a turning and repentance, when the thought starts coming in, then we get further and further down this road. And the further we get, the more pain it bears. The further we get, the harder it is to turn. Because Satan gets a stronger and stronger foothold. Sin is absolutely insidious. And that's why he says he's granted to Israel repentance and forgiveness of sins. Remorse is not enough. When, when, when a man caught in adultery is confronted with his sins and the evidence is right there, you say, okay, I did it. Okay, I did it. But is there an attitude of repentance? Brokenness isn't enough because brokenness can come just because I've been exposed. It is turning and saying, never again. I need to get into counseling. I need to have accountability that's going to see me through this. That I'm going to be accountable. I'm going to walk through this in accountability. There needs to be a change like that. There are things in our lives where we need accountability. And this is why it is so important to be part of a local church. It is so important. What happens is, when you're within the Christian community in the university, very often you feel sheltered by this Christian community. There's people there who know you, who live with you, who are around you. And that when you start going astray, they they look at you and just their look cries out, Hypocrite! And you have this community. But as soon as you graduate, you no longer have often this community. And so you have to learn to be a member of a local church where you interact. Where when you're going astray, people can look at you and say, Your countenance is falling, fallen. What's wrong with you? You look different. That they can begin to see this and you, you need to be able to confess, Yes, I'm going astray. This is where accountability comes in. 
If you say, well, I'm married and that takes care of it, that doesn't often take care of it because very often a man is not receptive to his wife's pleas. And so we have to be able to be open to this sort of thing and we have to have interaction with the body of Christ that can look at our lives and say, something's different about you. You don't look like you know, things are going very well with you. Because what happens is our countenance falls. Something happens. You can see it in a person's face. And they need encouragement. And, they, and that person needs to begin to close off their life if it is happening as a result of sin. And if we dwell on this thing and let this thing progress in our own minds, we begin to open this door. And Satan then has access in a way he never had before. It is this door that is open to the enemy. And we can very much be oppressed by the enemy because of this. And it causes us then then to do things that we would never normally do. You know, I look at some men that I've known that have fallen into sin and I'm thinking, how? How could you do this thing? How could you lie like this? How could you do this thing? I've never known that this could happen. But what was going on all the while is that they were, they were allowing this thing to progress in their mind and it opened the door for the enemy. He says he's come to grant repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. So when we see this thing start to come in our lives, look in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. There's this beautiful verse that... that uh, uh, so, right after Ephesians is Philippians and before Colossians. And, and Philippians 4, verse 8 says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence And if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. You want to know what to do? Take your mind and dwell on the things that are honorable, right, pure, lovely, good repute. Think about the good things. Let your mind dwell on those good things. Because if you just say, I won't dwell on that. I won't won't think about that woman. I won't... It's very hard to... To not do it. But if you then fill your mind with that which is good, you fill your mind with right things, with with worshiping Jesus, with memorizing Scripture, it keeps you from going in the wrong way. That's why he says, let your mind dwell on that which is good. And this is how we catch that thing in the early stage before it takes us too far. Again, you want to know how insidious this is? We will justify in our own minds that the conversation with this woman that we shouldn't be talking with is a spiritual conversation. I'm helping her. She's going through a struggle. I am helping her. I'm just listening to what she's going through. It is not your place to be helping her. God's given you a wife. Help your wife. And let your wife help this woman. You know, one day I was in, in graduate school and the neighbors were going through uh, a real difficult time, and the woman used to come to our apartment, and in the evenings we we would have uh, this small group that would come in, a a group of students, and we would share with them. And sometimes this woman would come to that group, but often she would come afterward, and she'd want to talk with us, and she was having a real difficult time with her husband, and they lived just right across the hall from us. 
uh, in the married student housing. And she'd come in and she'd sit on the couch and Shireen was there and she'd start talking to me and Shireen said to me one day, I don't like the way she's looking at you. I didn't know what she was talking about. I said, well, how does she look at me? She said, I, I just don't like the way she's looking at you. And it was early enough in my marriage that I didn't realize how accurate Shireen is on things like this. Now, when she says this, I know she's absolutely right. If she says, you know, this person is, you know, you, you know this woman is feeling this way about you, she's always right. Well, and, and so, one day, I, you know, I wasn't paying much attention to what she said, and the only time I was talking to this woman was when Shireen was sitting there right with me. But I get a call in the lab, and it's this woman. And she says to me, you need to come, I need to talk with you. And uh, she says, I got in a fight with my husband, and he's hit me, and I need to talk with you. And I said, and I knew enough to know that I shouldn't go into this. And I said, well, I'll send Shireen. And she says, no, my husband has hit me, and I'm bruised, and you need to see this. And then, you know, these warning bells started going off. I mean, I'm, I'm not a pre-med. I'm not a physician. I mean, I don't need to see this sort of thing. I'm a chemist. You know, we, we don't learn how to fix bruised bodies. And, and, uh, and then I said, okay, I'll, I'll ask this, this other lady who w- was a common friend to both of us. I said, I'll ask Anne to come and see you. She says, no, I want you. And so I just got off the phone with her and I called Shireen and I said, you've got to go and visit this woman. There's no way I'm going there. But it was very clear what was going on. But if we justify in our own minds that I'm going to help this woman, this is how wicked sin can really be. And we end up taking a thought and letting it develop and develop. And we have to take steps that keep us from going in these directions. These are steps that protect us. Very often women who are in marriage, when marriages invariably go through seasons of rough times, especially in the early years, there are things that come up in marriage and you work through them. This is part of life. You know, Shireen and I have had our rough times, but for us, divorce was never an option. We went into this thing and divorce was never an option. So when things came up, you know, we would talk with counselors and they'd mention you know, divorce, that, you know, it's important that you guys... Are, and I'm looking at them and I'm thinking, you know, we've come to you for help, for counseling. But divorce isn't even in my vocabulary. This is not part of the equation here why we're coming to see you. We just want to flow together better. Don't even bring up the topic of divorce. We're not near that. We're not, that's not part of our lives. So you can just drop that, that sort of thing. And so for us, it was never there. So we had to work through this thing. Invariably, this happens in young marriages. Difficulties come up. And so when the husband and the wife aren't communicating well, the woman is at work, and all of a sudden there's this man at work who listens to her. And she starts, he starts becoming really attractive to her because he listens. And she starts thinking, wow, I wish my husband would listen to me like that. And lo and behold, things start to develop and all of a sudden the guy is holding her hand as she's starting to pour out her her sorrows to him and complaining about the relationship with her husband. And then, lo and behold, they're in bed together. This happens to people. This happens to Christian people. And we allow this thing to develop and God is saying, stop, 
stop right there and begin to let your mind dwell on good things. You need counseling, you go to somebody. If a woman needs counseling, go to a woman and get some counseling. If a man needs counseling, go to a man and get some counseling. Half the people in the church are of the same sex as you. Choose one of those and get some counsel from them. Unless you're going together to a counselor. But there are certain things that God does. And what I'm trying to do is spare you the trouble of what I am seeing over and over and over again. And even just this past week, I'm trying to spare you the trouble. People that I never would have thought would have walked down that road, walked down that road and got so far. And what happened is the ground will never yield its fruit to them again the same way. Because when they've gone that far into a state, say, of adultery and gone into that, though there can be recovery through repentance, the ground will never, ever be the same. There will always be that sting, those thorns there. It will always be different. And I'm trying to spare you of that. And sin is extremely deceitful. And so we must learn to quickly repent. It's a very rapid repentance. When we start finding ourselves dwelling in the wrong direction, immediately say, God, I am wrong, forgive me, and turn and start thinking about something that is good and right and pure and holy and of good repute. Start thinking of that. Let your mind be filled with that. You start memorizing Scripture. Take a portion from the Psalms and start memorizing that. And as you're memorizing it, it will free you from dwelling on the wrong thing. Take a verse and start thinking about this verse, meditating on this verse through the day. And then when your mind gets drawn astray, just pull that verse out of your pocket, read it again, and let your mind start dwelling on that. And that's how you break that. And then the door shuts closed and Satan can't get his foot in. He has come to grant to Israel repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Rapid repentance keeps us from going too far. Okay, let's look in verse 33 of Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, verse 33. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. This is the council. This is the Sanhedrin. When they heard... This word of Peter and the other apostles, they were cut to the quick and they intended to kill them. So just these words, they were intended to kill these men. Verse 34, But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to the men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after this, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. And he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men, And let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may be even found fighting against God. 
They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer, suffer shame for his name. And every day, in the temple, and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So, this man Gamaliel stood up, and I, I've learned a little bit about Gamaliel just recently, just trying to learn about this passage. He was highly respected. In fact, Paul learned from the school of Gamaliel. Uh, so, so he was a, a very respected teacher, and he was called one of these doctors of, of the law. And he was a Pharisee. So remember, the Pharisees are not going along with the Sadducees in wanting to kill these people. And the Pharisees make up two-thirds of the Sanhedrin. And he says, men of Israel, and he, he cites two different occasions. One is a, an occasion of Theudas, and then another, a man, Judas of Galilee. And there were two censuses. There was the census that, that uh, uh, Quirinius brought about, that, remember, brought Joseph and Mary down into Bethlehem. There was that census. There was also another census about eight years after that. Uh, and and uh, this man, Judas of Galilee, there is historical evidence what happened to Judas of Galilee. Judas of Galilee uh, didn't want to uh, pay taxes because he said paying taxes is giving money to Caesar and it's not honoring God. And he had some following with him and his following was, was crushed by a procurator, came in with 5,000 horsemen, got hold of Judas of Galilee and cut off his head. And, and uh, uh, this was actually the beginnings of the Zealot movement, uh, which was persisting to this day. And then, and then Gamaliel comes with this counsel. He says, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown, but if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. That was his advice. That was his opinion. That is not scriptural truth. The scriptures are just quoting what he said. The scriptures, the scriptures quote people lying. They'll say, so-and-so said such-and-such, which was an obvious lie. It's just quoting what the man said. If you look in Job, there were friends of Job that were speaking, and it sounded interesting, but later on in that same book, God said what they said had no value. So just because a man says it and it's written in the Bible doesn't make it scriptural truth. This man said something, and in fact, think about it. There are many things that are not of God that continue on for a long, long time. I mean, how many religions are there that we know are not of God, that are not of God's way, but they persist for thousands of years? How many cults are there within, that are offshoots of Christianity? And these cults have persisted for hundreds and hundreds of years, if not longer. And so just, this was just simply his advice, his, his opinion. His opinion is wrong, but this was his opinion. But his opinion was able to sway the council. And in fact, this, this, uh, uh, although Judas of Galilee had been beheaded, the zealot movement was actually still going quite strong at this time. But this advice was able to sway the council. They took his advice... And so they decided not to kill them as a result. So they had them brought in and they had them flogged. The flogging was this, this uh, 40 lashes. It was 39 lashes. It was, they were allowed to do 40. They would administer 39 to, for fear that they might go over 40 if they lost count. Paul underwent this flogging five times, he said. F- 
Five times he underwent this flogging. This is very different than the flogging that Jesus went through. Jesus went through the, 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 the uh, uh, scourging, the Roman scourging, which was far more brutal than this. And, and then they went out, they went out from the council, and they rejoiced, having been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. I mean, think about that. Here they had been flogged. So this is a public spectacle. It is not easy to be stripped down and to be flogged publicly. So this is really quite embarrassing. I mean, these guys hadn't grown up going to jail. And this is quite an embarrassing thing. This is the first time they actually suffered physical harm because of the name of Jesus. And in fact, it says they, they went out rejoicing because they were considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day, every day, in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Every day, they went back at it again. The initial reaction when somebody confronts us because of our faith is to get angry and to feel sorry for ourselves. And how do you know? Because I know what happens to myself. So when my colleagues get upset with me because I've shared something or been a witness for Jesus, my initial reaction is to feel sorry for myself. Oh, look, I've just witnessed you, and look, I've you know, upset these people, and my colleagues are all upset. And this verse comes right back to me. They rejoiced, they rejoiced, and they could, for having been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. Remember the joy of being able to suffer shame for His name. Consider yourself worthy. Consider yourself worthy. It is, it, it, it is something to rejoice over. That you've been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. So take that response and turn it around. Remember this verse. You can speak of the Lord and consider yourself worthy to suffer shame for His name. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the Scriptures, for Your Word. And I pray for these young people that You keep them from that way of sin. You keep them from that way of following a path of sin. Father, that You would take these young men and guard their hearts and their lives. And Father, when their minds start to go into a direction that is sinful, lest they they start opening the door for Satan to come in, Father, I pray that they would take thoughts that are good and pure, righteous and holy, and they would start to dwell on on, on the good things. Father, may their minds dwell on the things that are good. And Father, I pray for these young men that You would keep them from walking in a way of adultery and destruction to their family, that which would bring destruction. And Lord, I pray for these young women that You would work in their lives to keep them in their lives from walking in that way of adultery. And Father, that they would take the thoughts that are good and pure, righteous, holy, and they would dwell on the good things. Father, I pray that from these young people many good marriages would be raised up. Many strong families would be raised up. And Father, that they would not throw away these treasures that they have in Jesus Christ. The treasure of being able to repent, being able to turn and have forgiveness of their sins. They would not throw it away for a bowl of porridge. Father, I pray that You would turn them wholeheartedly to You. And Father, that they would learn to walk in the righteousness of Your Word. 
May your grace abound, O Lord. Your grace abound upon them. And Father, to you I commit them and I commit your spirit. In the name of Jesus. Amen.